Today, Coastal Front welcomes Pete Fry and Michael Weeb, incumbents and council candidates running for the Green Party of Vancouver. Well, founded in 1984, it took some time before there was a green representation on city council. And Adrian Carr, one of my very first guests on Coastal Front, became the first representative for the Green Party with city council back in 2011. However, the 2018 election gave reason for celebration for the Greens as they increased their seat count from one to three with our two gentlemen here. Prior to becoming a city councillor, Pete was a self-employed graphic designer and communications consultant. He has been a strong community advocate in his Strathcona neighborhood and has taken on leadership positions with the Union of BC Municipalities, National Zero Waste Council, and the Renters and Transportation Advisory Committees. Michael has served under the City of Vancouver banner for the last eight years, both as Park Board Commissioner and City Councillor. Throughout this, his time, he has supported rich cultural spaces, accessible inclusion, and of course, climate change mitigation. In addition to all this, Michael is also a local business owner in Mount Pleasant. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the show today. Why don't I take, give you guys a moment to each talk about yourselves for those listeners who may not know who you are, Michael and Pete, as well as the Green Party of Vancouver. Sure. So, uh, you know, this the 2018 election, actually, we elected uh, nine out of 10 candidates. So across all three boards, park, school, and of course, city council. And we were the top vote getters in almost all of those arenas. So it was it was quite a victory for us. And I think, you know, really builds on a lot of Adrian Carr's work over, over the years. And I think the appetite I th- from, from the public for real meaningful kind of uh, acknowledgement of the climate crisis that we're obviously facing now, um, it's been a fantastic... Uh, Job for me uh, as a first-time city councillor. I really enjoy the work. There's a tremendous amount of. I mean, there's the front-facing public stuff that we do a lot of public hearings, a lot of business and council. But then there's all the -the behind-the-scenes work that we do. Uh, For me, it's been an incredibly rewarding four years. I really love the work. I I remember a a former city councillor once told me it was a part-time job, and uh, this is not a part-time job. This is a 120% job. Uh, but I love her minute. Uh, there's a lot of work we do behind the scenes, helping constituents and making things happen and uh, meeting the needs of Vancouverites. And it's really, really uh, an honor and a privilege. Hence the reason you're running a second term. That's exactly right. Okay. How about yourself, Michael? Yeah, uh, similar. 2013, I was looking at which political party to run with. Um, I'd been a community advocate. I'd been on the Mount Pleasant Implementation Committee, been involved in work for Park Board for 10 years. I was trying to make that shift in understanding how I could better present myself and do work for the city of Vancouver. Um, And I looked at the political parties, looked at the ones that were around and recognized I wanted a political party that worked collaboratively, was evidence-based, wouldn't whip the vote, would allow me to make the decisions I wanted to make. I wanted to bring a different element to the party. I wanted to bring more of a business sense. I wanted to create kind of that opportunity where we could look at economic development, um, recognizing that we are moving into a just transition. I saw a lot of work with arts and culture coming out of Mount Pleasant on how we could change our communities and really bring communities into the decision making we've made. And so I picked the Green Party of Vancouver and been very proud of that decision and been privileged to be with them for eight years, as well as being chair at Park Board, um, which was an amazing opportunity to really work with community to make the city a better place. So we're running again uh, with the Green Party and, of course, Councillor Adrian Carr running for her, I guess, third term. Yeah. And two new candidates, Stephanie Smith and Deviani Singh, who are... Stephanie's a housing advocate and labor activist, and Deviani's a climate scientist, and they're both fantastic candidates. And you know, it'd be yeah. great. Hopefully, you get an opportunity to get them on the show sometime soon yeah. because they're they're really actually pretty fantastic. We've got a great team of five running in this good election. Team. Yeah, good. Um, okay, well, look, let's let's go straight into these two big topics. 
Um, first of all, you know, politicians we find tend to often stay away from any kind of ugly areas um, when they um, come onto our show. And, and one of those, uh, and I don't mean to say that in a disparaging way, but the downtown east side is one of those issues. And Pete, you've actually decided this is the topic you want to talk about, which I think is great. Um, so let me start by a very open-ended question. But in your view, what does the downtown east side represent for Vancouver? Well, it's a complicated relationship, I think. And it's uh, decades of systemic failure on a variety of fronts, on mental health and addictions, on policing, on housing and homelessness, on... Um, you know, poverty on on kettling people in, in in this one part of town where and not providing options in other parts of the city, and I think it really represents a lot of, of failures from all levels of government. This is not Vancouver's problem; it's definitely a problem in our city. But this is not of our own making alone. This is, again, this is decades of systemic failure, and uh, it's all coming home to roost. And I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that a good proportion of the folks who are suffering in the downtown east side. Are indigenous and this is systemic and this is a result of you know the legacy of residential schools and the oppression of indigenous people across our country mm-hmm. and they have come to uh, Vancouver and uh, met uh, I consider a very horrible fate for a lot of folks and obviously the murdered and missing women uh, is emblematic of that but there's a lot of misery in the downtown east side and yeah there's a lot of work we can do yeah okay so speaking to that work look you've been on City Council for the last four years um, and I think most listeners, anybody who's been down to the downtown east side or even just driven through sees the misery down there. So I think we all uh, agree with your comments. There's got to be some successes, but there's also some, some failures. So can you take a moment to just, on, in the, if you just take the lens of the last four years while you've been on city council, where has, have you and your, local, your, your fellow councillors and mayor succeeded and where have you failed? One of the things that I've been pushing the most and I'm incredibly frustrated by yeah. what, is the idea of, of tiny homes as, okay. as, a, as a triaging interim shelter for folks because we know right now... So you now want that, tiny homes, is that just make sure... Yeah, yeah. so there's terms. still... Okay. So I brought forward a successful motion at council. We still haven't seen any implementation of it. We've seen resistance from the province. We've seen resistance from our own staff. They're not interested in pursuing this, but we know it's a workable solution. There's a great company out of Seattle called Pallet Shelters and they build these kind of aluminum and plastic huts with a, a peaked roof. Yeah. They have a locking door, an opening window, pull down cot. You can move a shopping cart in there. They cost about $8,000 a piece. So they're cheap. Wow. And the key is the locking door. So they set these up in parking lots and all sorts of areas with supportive services on site, washrooms, you know, harm reduction, all the kind of services that you would need to successfully integrate folks and staff to move them as a trio. So we're getting them into this tiny house, which is safer than a tent and oftentimes safer than an SRO because you talk to folks who live in SROs and if you've ever visited a single room occupancy hotel, they're horrible. People have to take knives to go to the washroom there in really? many cases because they're well, not safe. Let's Because a lot of our listeners aren't like politically, uh, you know, that plugged in, SRO, you just mentioned it, SRO stands for? Single room occupancy hotel. So these are the 100 year old hotels that were originally built to service resource workers who would come down from the bush and partied up in Vancouver on the, their weeks off, Okay, gradually became homes for these men as they retired. And now they're basically the housing of last resort for the most vulnerable and high impact I see. populations in our city. Typically, they used to rent at welfare rates, although many of them do not anymore. They're all broken down. Uh, we've had a number of fires and rent evictions. So this year, we're probably on track to lose about a dozen of these hotels through fire, neglect, rent eviction, that kind of thing. Okay. 
Uh, and the sad unfortunate reality is the only options from there are the shelter system, which many people refuse to go into because they're congregate settings. Again, you don't really have, you have a cot yeah. and you have to move your stuff out in the morning and you can come back at night. Yeah, and so no it's stability. Yeah. So these tiny home solutions have worked successfully in California, all up and down the coast. Yeah. Uh, I saw them in Boston, Massachusetts, actually right near Fenway stadium. There was a bunch of them yeah, and they, they looked great. They, they're, they're, they are a disaster response. And sure. I consider what we're experiencing here in our city now and across yeah. British Columbia and Canada uh, to be a disaster. So how do we meet people where they're at yeah. and successfully triage them out of the, living in a tent on the street or living in the shelter system, yeah. get them a little bit more stable, get them the services sure. that they need and help them navigate to their next yeah. place. Okay, that's helpful. You mentioned because of these SROs being uh, sort of the number of units being declining because of rent evictions and fires and that some of them are just not suitable to even live in. Is that why we're seeing more people in tents in the, in the downtown? Uh, side? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Really? There's yeah. a high correlation between the two? Yeah, well, we lost, so the Winters Hotel, that was 60 units there. We had another ho hotel fire that lost another 60 units. Those are just for fires. We had the Balmoral in the Regent, which yeah. we've we've shut down because they were physically unsafe. Right. And then there's, there's a number of private SROs where they're, actively renovating the, 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 the low income tenants out and, and fixing them up a little bit and turning them into student housing. So as the oh pandemic gosh, really? has sort of like waned a little bit and we're seeing a return of international students, uh, there's a huge opportunity because we lost a lot of purpose built hotels, which the province did purchase actually to replace a lot of SROs. So for instance, here on Granville Street, we've had a couple the Howard of Johnson. the Howard Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. So that's unlike the typical SRO, which is, is, just basically a room with a hot plate and you use a shower and a, and a toilet down the hall. Yeah. The Howard Johnson are self-contained units. And yeah. that's, so that's technically not an SRO. When I had Sam Sullivan in uh, on a podcast, he talked about the Howard Johnson. Now he's a resident of Yale town and he's quite frustrated over the way that that's been managed. Now, is that a provincial? Yeah, I think it's important to clarify because we do hear a lot about that. And yeah. in the case of the Howard Johnson, that is, there was no change of use. There was no real city input because right. it hasn't changed from being a hotel. Yeah, he mentioned there's no wraparound services whatsoever. Correct. And, and that's that, a real that, problem. I think that was yeah. an oversight on the part of the province. Yeah. They should have. Is that BC Housing? That's BC Housing. Okay. But ostensibly, they purchased a hotel and they continue to operate it as a hotel. I see. Except the tenants aren't travelers. The tenants yeah. are folks who are living in the tent city. Yeah. Pete, do you feel that we live in a safe city like do you feel safe walking down the streets of vancouver <clears throat> andrew you know i'm you we're meeting for the first time face to face yeah. but i'm a big guy i've got the privilege of being a you know healthy able-bodied male so i yeah. feel safe but i recognize that i have privilege there and i know a lot of people who don't feel safe especially in my neighborhood a lot of the the chinese seniors i know my wife doesn't especially feel safe walking around our neighborhood and at certain times of day so i would say that uh, we have problems with uh, with public safety for sure, community yeah. safety, the perception of safety. And these aren't necessarily issues that we can police our way out of. Police are certainly a, have a role to play in that, but I think a lot of this is like around untreated mental health and addictions issues, a lack of housing, yeah. a lack of those kind of wraparound supports that we talked about that aren't included in the Howard Johnson Hotel. Yeah, okay. Um, I wanna go back to the SRO. The federal government stated that housing is a basic human right. In 2020, your city council voted for a $1 billion SRO purchase plan to buy 105 hotels. I think along the lines of trying to address this uh, loss of, of SROs. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about how that particular plan has been going? 
I mean, you know, the 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 tendency, the the trend is to move away from SROs. So I think there's kind okay. of a universal idea that we're not really. I mean, SROs are a bit of a stopgap measure. What we're really looking for is more purpose-built housing that is fully complete that, right. and that has As different a disaster response like you kind of articulated. Well, so that's earlier. a triage, right? So yeah. the disaster response is to, like, let's just get them something so they're not living in a tent on, right. the, on the side of the street or in a park. But that's not a long-term solution. That's not a long-term. And then from the, 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 the triage approach, then we get them into permanent housing. And that ideally would be distributed and meet the kind of different needs. So what the province is now starting to look at is what we call complex care housing. So complex care is and this is based on a lot of work that's been going on with Dr. Bill McEwen as the head of psychiatry at St. Paul's Hospital. Uh, and, and looking at some of the, there's there's a core population of maybe a couple of hundred really high impact individuals who have profound mental health and addictions issues, uh, criminality, various different kind of intersections, and getting them into a very specific kind of housing that's more supportive, tailored to their needs. And so that folks who aren't necessarily as high impact, that maybe just or have a disability or have some mental health issues or whatever they're but they're but they're not really troubled and yeah. they can actually live fairly independently with some you know a little bit of support but getting those options so that folks can live um, you know I'm I have a case in point I have a lovely woman who's uh, 86 years old she was lost her housing in Burnaby she used to live in Vancouver moved to Burnaby didn't work out tried to get back into the city, and the only place we could house her is in the brand new Rodden Lodge, which is fantastic. Michael and I visited. It's a it's a new city building. It's a fantastic, but it's in the middle of the downtown east side, and uh, she just doesn't feel safe. And it's, you know, a difficult situation. And what we, you know, so in, in a case like hers, where's the housing opportunities outside the downtown east side so, so that right. she can walk to the corner store, she can go out and, like, go to the park and not feel threatened? And I think that's important to recognize that there's different needs for different populations. Okay. Okay. But right now, we just kettle them all in the downtown east side. And I yeah. think that's part of the problem. Has there been any uh, cross-government collaboration on getting this uh, problem resolved? Or well, does it really well, feel well, like, so, do you feel like you're carrying the So this is a conversation when we were having a public safety conversation at city council. Uh, Chief Palmer asked him about this specifically, and we agreed that we need to have the sort of idea of a Vancouver Agreement too. So the Vancouver Agreement yeah. 20 years ago brought all the levels of government together to work collaboratively on, on the issue at that point was AIDS, uh, primarily through through intravenous drug use, and how we could tackle that. Obviously, we have a, a bigger problem now with the overdose crisis and the mental health crisis, and we need to collaborate with our resources and recognize our different roles and responsibilities and where the money's going to come from to do this. and 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 really take a proactive, comprehensive approach so we're not operating in silos. The Vancouver Agreement uh, that you spoke about, this is this expired in 2010, if I got that yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. It, we have had nothing for over a decade. And I think that's part of the problem. Okay. And, you know, I'll be honest, I was, I've, when I first got elected and the mayor asked me what I wanted to do with my term, and I said, well, like, I'm the downtown east side, that's the, the hill I'll die on. I think that's an important issue. And it's been frustrating to be somewhat denied any access to really kind of pursue that because mm -hmm. I think that is... Is it not important enough for other councillors? Is that the problem? I mean, it seems odd that, I mean, when, I, I think it's Jean it's, Swanson in here, she seems very passionate about yeah, this topic. I think it means different things to different councillors uh -huh. um, and the solutions have... Uh, the downtown east side is a, is a very political environment um, with a lot of different opinions, a lot of different players, a lot of different organizational structures. Uh, so it's, 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 it's not a simple solution, and I think recognizing that there are political players 
um, and how to navigate that is is part of the uh, inertia around getting things done. Yeah, well, that goes back to my question of like cross government collaboration because it seems like it's really tough to get the federal government to the provincial government to the table with some actual real action. I mean, there seems a lot of a lot of talk, but as an outside observer, I mean, is that a fair comment to say that it's, it seems tough to get their support? I mean, they have come to the table more over the last little bit, and we have seen funding to buy some of the hotels we're doing, right? We've got 1,600 social housing units, the most we've ever seen in Vancouver last year. We're, we're at Roden Lodge, so almost every month we're at another opening of a new building. It takes time to build this housing. So when people are said, why isn't it built yet? I mean, we've been spending, since we got elected, as quickly as possible, let's get the housing built. And we're starting to see 100 units here, 98 units here, 65 here, and it's coming, and it's great. And the housing we just went to had showers, had lockers for people that needed them, had a room so that we could make sure that bed bugs weren't being transferred into the units, like had some really important services that we hadn't seen before. And so right. I think there is more collaboration, and that was a group with province, federal government funding, and city funding. And okay. so we are starting to see it. It's just same with the treatment center at Clark and First, right? We do have all levels of government at the table. We haven't even broken ground yet. These things take time, and that's part of some of the frustration is people want solutions now, and that's why where we've got tiny homes and other solutions of changing how we do outreach is really important here in the city of Vancouver is we need to roll up our sleeves and get to work and move as quickly and nimble as possible, which is something we've recognized is difficult in a government setting. But I think our council has done a good job at saying we can't wait any longer. We can't keep going to the status quo. We all born and raised here in Vancouver. It is difficult to walk down Hastings Street. Yeah. And we go sit in conversations in that little park near Hastings and Maine. There's a beautiful park there and speak to the community. And the trauma that they're going through on a daily basis yeah. is really difficult. Yeah, Some members have to leave for a couple of days because if you're doing work down there and you just see pain after pain and the yeah. amount of, I mean, death that we're seeing down there is horrendous. And yeah. so it's really hard on the workers down there. And so we need solutions and we need them as quickly as possible. Councillors voted on to implement a uh, stricter rent control for tenants who live in these single room occupancy hotels to prevent people from being uh, becoming homeless. Um, in 2020, the city took over ownership of the Balmoral and Regent hotels by the Sohota family. Would this not incentivize owners to not maintain the property and let it deteriorate to a point where the city needs to step in? Yeah, it's and, and that's the conundrum that we've been faced with. And I, I know this is one that our, our staff grapple with. So we have a, a standing bylaw, the standards of maintenance bylaw, that really mandates that these SRO hotels have to be held up to a certain standard, any property in the city of Vancouver for that matter. And we've increasingly seen, uh, in, in particular, the Sohota properties where life safety was actually compromised, open, open wiring, unfinished walls, you know, plumbing that wasn't working, floors that were rotting out, like some, some pretty significant issues that compromised the health and safety of the residents. So that was an extreme case where we actually had to shut it down. In the past, there's been concerns from our staff around enforcing the standards of maintenance bylaw because they felt that if we levied too many fines, it would incentivize them to just get out of the business altogether. And that's one of the challenges with these private SROs and why we're not in, in especially interested in replicating the SRO model and moving towards a more appropriate kind of housing stock. Right. Uh, because the reality is, is these private SROs, as soon as it's no longer financially viable, they're just going to get out of the business. Right. And, Good point. You know. And it's helpful. I didn't realize how they came to be in the first place. It wasn't like this was some sort of master plan that these were, these were an evolution out of hotels that were originally built for 
Yeah, for loggers and miners and and fishermen coming into town to blow their wages on the, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay. I want to comment about uh, what I described as like this Hastings Street tent city. Mayor Kennedy Stewart has been quoted as saying, we're making good progress with respect to, um, you know, removing these tents. Um, Would you agree with his comments? Um, You know, good progress is, is, I'm not sure I would probably label it as good progress. We're certainly making progress, and I know our staff are working really, really hard on this. The challenge is, is there literally is not places for folks to go. Right. And that's, and because we've, you know, we, what, it was two weeks ago that we had a fire that took out 60 SRO rooms. Wow. So, you know, that's, that, we have to find homes for those people. And when I say we, I'm talking about not just city staff, but working with BC Housing and working with nonprofit partners. That is a, a significant challenge. And then managing housing seems to be in a bit of a mess of itself. They just lost their CEO, just quit. Yeah, yeah. And there's frustration over. Well, and there's also a board. uh, The board was removed as well. Yeah. And there's there's been been an audit of their operations that found that there was probably some better planning that could have gone into some of the the decisions that were made. And so I think we'll see some changes at BC Housing. Um, And I know that there's a new acting CEO. Yeah. It's interesting when you go down there now, it's a very different approach. We're no longer just going there and doing these power sweeps, we're going down there with a dignified approach to find out what are the root causes, why are people down there, how we can help them, and then we're getting them to move voluntarily because we're finding a better place for them. Okay. And we're making sure that the life and safety is there and the criminal activity, we're working to try to figure out how we can eliminate that, but really deal with the people that are in a bad situation. And I think anyone in the city agrees we need to help the people that are in difficult situations. There's other people taking advantage of what's going on down there. Yeah. And so it's a bit of a balance, but I think this new approach is a great step forward because the status quo hasn't worked for 20 years. It hasn't. And yeah. we all know that. Yeah. Anyone that's been down there knows that. So I appreciate that our staff are coming with a different approach and working with community for the first time and working with different organizations on the ground to deal with root cause, which is part of what the Greens have been pushing for is a more restorative city where we care for each other and we find different practices because um, we're not going to rest our way out of Hastings Street, we need to make sure we find yeah, out why people are doing yeah. things. We know that. Yeah. Um, and I think we are a compassionate city. And I think most people would agree that we need to find different processes to make it work. Yeah. Okay. Well said, Michael. Okay. Last question I'd like to ask, going back to Howard Johnson, wraparound services, this type of thing. When we had uh, Councillor Gene Swanson on just on a few weeks ago, representing uh, COPE for their, their mandate, she made the comment that um, if there was more adequate housing available, we wouldn't need wraparound services. Do you agree with this comment? Uh, I don't think the scientific evidence and the medical evidence would support that. I think that there is certainly uh, different people will need different supports. So people with you know disabilities or barriers to employment, there's people who are elderly, they're all going to have different support needs. And certainly people who you know suffer with mental health and addictions issues are going to have different supports even within those those cohorts you know you'll have people who have need mental health supports you'll have people who need addiction support so wraparound services there's no stigma or shame to wraparound services it's a good thing uh, I think you know and it's it's going to be different things for different people and it's about meeting people where they're at and I think that's the, the key to appropriate delivery of wraparound services and when we talk about wraparound services I mean one thing that just feel like we need to highlight because we talk about it all the time is public washrooms that's not exactly a wraparound service but it's a service that is essential and and incredibly overlooked and and desperate need and i think that's Mm -hmm. something that that we've showed intent uh to see delivery on and and it does come with a significant price tag unfortunately washrooms aren't 
they're relatively cheap to build, but the operating cost is significant as well. So I think that's something that we would like to see more of a thoughtful kind of investment in from, and hopefully with the new council would we'll be able to really push more on, on that issue because that singular lack of public washrooms manifests in some of the the really more sort of odious elements of, of, of Hastings Street and that's literal, literal filth on the streets that um, just begat, begets more kind of misery and I think yeah. it, it really compounds and exacerbates the problems and it's just not a dignified way for humans to live and I yeah. think we can this is a basic United Nations kind of sustainable, sustainable development goal is sure. access to washrooms yeah. and water and yeah. you know if we can't pull that off in the city we're we're not doing our job yeah okay fellas we've had a chance to talk about downtown east side we've had a chance to talk about complete communities now we get to talk about my topic which is around financial accountability uh, adrian carr presented a motion to council which would see the city of vancouver spend seven hundred thousand dollars in 2023 to sue big oil companies it was approved by council in July 20th this year with the two of you being in favor of this uh, and being in support. So my first question is, why is suing big oil companies more important than addressing basic municipal priorities like wastewater treatment, ABC's talking about planting trees, and uh, you just mentioned a little while ago about public washrooms. Well, so, you know, one thing we do know, and we, I think, the verdict's no longer out on climate change. We know climate change is happening, and, and it's costing our city upwards of $50 million a year. We have an infrastructure deficit that needs a significant investment to replace. We see the impacts of stormwater runoff and how it's affecting our pipe systems, and, and we're seeing the increase in potholes and those kind of th issues on our road surfaces. We're seeing the impacts of the heat dome, and, and we had almost 100 deaths in the city of Vancouver during that heat dome. So we know that climate change is having actual impact on our bottom line. And so the province recently, recently successfully sued um, and collected, I think, $150 million from Purdue Pharma over the, uh, the marketing of, of addictive OxyContin-type drugs. Mm -hmm. And so that class action lawsuit has actually yielded a significant amount of money back to the province of British Columbia. If That, I think, is the, the essence of the thinking behind suing big oil. We know that fossil that a fuel big companies. Bet. Seven hundred thousand dollars with the hopes that you might get this massive payout. I mean, that seems like a pretty large uh, risk reward equation. Yeah, but it, but mean, we but we know that this is actually something that's being pursued actively, not just here in Vancouver. This isn't just a Vancouver thing. This is actually being pursued across North America and Europe. Yeah. And well, I, mean, I think is, there's 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 a, a significant basis to actually think that that it may the courts may in fact decide in the, in their in our favor on this one, because there is evidence that climate or fossil fuel corporations were very well aware of the impacts of, of climate change and the direct correlation between fossil fuel use and climate mm -hmm. change and chose to ignore it and mislead the public over 40 years ago and sure. ongoing. So yeah, it's like the if, tobacco story of like 20 sure, years ago. Sure. But I guess the question comes back to like, you got local taxpayers dollars going to a law firm in Quebec to go after a lawsuit that may not yield anything. Do you really yeah. feel like that's good use of local taxpayer? I mean, why not get the provincial government to do that? I mean, yeah, great point. And and to be clear, that motion is a report back. So it's we haven't committed seven hundred. It's, it's supposed to report back with a plan, and it could okay. be up to up to six hundred and something thousand. It's one dollar per resident. So okay, it could be up to that. Okay. So I think that still there's, a lot of money. What, yeah, where, I mean, where, like a, where I guess where this next question leads into though, and the big concern I have is a you know, and I. Uh, 
I voted for you guys in the last election for full transparency, but I'm, I'm looking at this going, guys, I mean, where do we draw the line here? I mean, if you agree to this, what, what's stopping you from some class action lawsuit with big oil at a United Nations level? I mean, shouldn't we be focusing these dollars? I mean, you could do a lot with $700,000, you know, or $600,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And I think that's where the where the, the, the details in the report back are going to sort of illustrate if it's a viable option. Okay. But yeah. I mean, we're spending, I think it was $25 million a year just on fixing the seawall and other things. I mean, the, sure. the, the amount of money we're spending on a city, we need to do preventative work. And, mm -hmm. right, we need to do that on downtown east side, but we need to do that for climate because then we're also spending almost $60 million on adaptation. And we talk about planting trees. We have a really low tree canopy here in Vancouver, and it's mm -hmm. something that the Greens were the only ones that kept some of the fights with the bylaw changes to make sure we didn't cut down as many trees as we did. And mm -hmm. so when we're talking about the amount of money we're gonna spend, $1 per person is going to be so small compared to what we're gonna to have to spend to adapt Vancouver and yeah. try to beat this climate change. Okay. I have to riff off the, the, the idea of planting trees just to, to yeah. you know, I mean, the Greens were the only ones to, to stand against the chopping down of more trees because they wanted to speed up permitting and the trees were in the way. Uh, but what's interesting about the promise to plant more trees, and I know Michael knows this firsthand from Park Board, is it's not just planting trees. You need a budget to keep those trees alive ongoing. Sure. And that's the piece that doesn't really get talked about. It's like- right. I was there with Gregor Robinson. We plant the 100,000th tree. I was there at the 150,000th tree. I mean, the goal is, is that we, those were net trees. We've lost a significant amount of trees, right? right. Those weren't net trees. I mean, those were just, we're gonna plant 100,000. They were not So yeah. they weren't net. And we yeah. didn't do that with a lot of Green City Action goals. And that's what the Greens have said. We can't just say we're planting 100,000. We need 100,000 more. Right, so if we are losing this many trees per year, and we're seeing that because it's getting warmer, different trees are managing better than they have in the past. Mm -hmm. Dave Demers is one of our park board commissioners at the point, at the moment, he's an arborist. So he says, why are you planting this tree on the north side? It's not gonna work. Why are you right. planting this here? So we are planting the right trees. At Metro Vancouver, I sit on the urban, um, I sit on Metro Parks, and we've decided on what trees should be planted across the region. What should we plant in the next five years? What's going to work? What's not going to work? And so the trees we want to plant now in the downtown east side are going to cost us a significant amount of money because you have to dig up that cement, create yeah. different tree wells. We're redesigning our cities so the water now flows into the trees before they just went into the gutter because it's so easy to just send it all to Iona and we right. get all this fresh water. We're changing the way the whole city works. You're seeing mm -hmm. bioswells being built. You're seeing different reallocation of street space because we need those groves of trees. And Amazon headquarters is opening up. And one of the yeah. things they talked about is they redid all their windows because there's a grove of trees across the street. And those tiny groves in the downtown core are so important and need the ground to grow. And yeah. so as Greens, we're going to make sure that we find those pieces of land, take them back and make sure we're planting those big trees that we need to see. Because if anyone can see three trees from your house, be 300 meters from a park and live in 30% urban cover, you're a much happier, healthier, and better person. Okay, look, one of my very first guests on Coastal Front was Matt Horn. He's the climate policy manager at the city of Vancouver. And his job is basically to, you know, decarbonize the, the city of Vancouver's own operations. He revealed that most of our buildings and municipal vehicles are powered by gas, natural gas, or diesel, including our cities, uh, community centers, and pools. So my first question to you is, do you support the electrification of the city's own uh, fleet of, uh, of vehicles? 
Yes. Yeah. As, as we phase out those old fossil fuel burning vehicles, for sure. And, and our building bylaws have adjusted to recognize all new buildings are going gas-free as far as heating and, and central cooling and going with heat pumps. And we've been working with the province on rebate programs for installing new heat pump mechanisms that can actually heat and cool uh, your, your, your building. We're moving towards passive house standards on a lot of our public buildings. Mm -hmm. We're looking to opportunities to build in those heat pump infrastructure into public buildings like libraries and community centers so that we're provi providing places for folks to go in, the, in these heat emergencies that are cooling. So okay. I think that's a critical part of our sort of growth strategy and all new buildings are, are heading that way, okay. especially municipal buildings. And then for some of our vehicles that are larger vehicles for engineering, we're actually taking the gas from our landfill and we're capturing it, we're compressing it, and we're actually utilizing it for yeah. a lot of our fleet. This which is the, the renewable natural gas. Yeah, that we're utilizing from our landfill that we're creating compressed. That's coming from Metro Vancouver, I think, is that right? It's actually our landfill. Oh, is our yeah. landfill? Yeah, okay. so it's City of Vancouver has a landfill in Delta, um, okay. which will soon Almost. be ending. Um, but at this point, we are capturing that gas and bringing it in um, to do our trucks, the larger ones. So we are seeing a significant increase in our new buys and new procurement will be electric. And we're also seeing okay. the shared vehicles. Vancouver finally has our electric Mobi, which is obviously a bike share for people in the community to utilize, which is electric. And so yeah. we are going to see more electrification of our fleet as we go up. I, I recall Matt saying that it was about 80% of all of our um, uh, uh, energy needs for the city of Vancouver's infrastructure comes to just the buildings and vehicles. So um, let's talk a minute about the buildings because they're a big energy suck and you mentioned about going to um, passive um, buildings or passive housing um, when it comes to community pools for example like I've been using kids pool for, for years and it's an iconic pool we have I believe it's powered by diesel or natural gas one of the two how do we possibly convert just say pools alone which take a lot of energy to heat them during the summertime when we have outdoor pools how do we get to electrification of say just pools because I mean the the cost of converting those pools to heat them by electricity is insane how, how are we so what there? we're doing I mean most of them now kits a great example and kits ice rinks a good example as well so kits okay. ice rink now heats our community center and a community center cools the ice rink and so we now do heat transfers for all of our ice rinks so okay the nursery at sunset is actually heated by the energy that comes off the ice rink at sunset so as many times as possible we try to reutilize re the heat the other big source we have is we have our own utility as the city of vancouver and we use the heat from our sewage um, and most people don't know that but when you look at the canvas street bridge and you see those lights that project and that building there, and we're continuing to expand it, utilizes the heat from our sewage, which is a significant opportunity in the city of Vancouver to reduce our GHGs by utilizing and heating our buildings um, by using our sewage. And then the convention center actually uses pipes that go into the ocean and uses the differential between the ocean temperature and other temperatures to heat that building. So as we build our new buildings, we're moving away from the traditional heat sources okay. and trying to collaborate because we recognize that when you have those pools and you have those ice rinks, they generate a lot that others need and you can transfer that. That's right. And so we're gonna do that throughout the city because we think maximizing our energy is best for, and it's financially great for us, right? Like yeah. we reduce our costs significantly as sure. well as our GHGs. Yeah, good, okay. 
Okay, Michael, now your turn. We're going to jump to this uh, concept of complete communities. And I'm going to get you to, uh, first off, explain what that concept is for our listeners, because um, they're not familiar with that concept. So can you just give us an explanation of when you say the word complete communities, what does that mean? Yeah, and it's a good question to ask, because I know in 2018, it's something I ran on as well. And I know when we first did the inauguration, the mayor was like, and Michael Weep here is bringing complete communities as one of his key attributes to what we're going to see in the city of Vancouver. And at that point, four years ago, no one had talked about it. Now it's starting to become more aware. People are more aware of it, which means a complete community community that has all your daily needs within kind of a walkable, short drivable, rollable component from your house, right? Five, okay. 10 minutes. You have the 10 minute city. You're hearing the 15 minute city. So the goal is, is that you should be able to go to the dentist, to your work, to school, all within 10 to 15 minutes. And right now in the city of Vancouver, we have some really good neighborhoods that demonstrate what this could look like. Um, and Can I've you been an involved. Example? Yes, I've been involved in the Mount Pleasant plan as the implementation planning committee. Mount Pleasant was a streetcar community. And so why it's so walkable and has such an amazing walkability score is that it was built around a streetcar hub. And so you had all the commercial there, you have all the housing, you have all the schools nearby. So you can live and enjoy Mount Pleasant without really leaving Mount Pleasant. So Mount Pleasant is one, and that's why the Broadway plan was so difficult for me, because I've been involved in what shaping Mount Pleasant's been for 15 years, about how we're gonna ensure arts and culture stays in Mount Pleasant. The person that lived across the hall, we were involved in what Mural Fest turned out to be, right? I was the president of the Mount Pleasant Business Improvement Association. He had this great idea just coming back from Montreal Mural Fest, and we were able to align our street festival with the work they're doing. And now if you walk around Mount Pleasant, there's tours every day because it's absolutely stunning. We just opened a new project, City of Vancouver at 2nd of Maine that has artists live work studios, it has makers labs. And everyone that lives in there is like, I love living here because everyone around me is artists and creative and it's such a great energy. And so when I say complete communities, it's what do we love about that community? And in the Vancouver plan, it talks about building on what we love. And so what is it about Carisdale you love? What is it about your neighborhood you love? Mm-hmm. And let's not take that away and just put a blanket slate of buildings. Yeah. Let's say, what, what is it you love there? And the Vancouver plan did a good element of that where they went and talked to the public and said, what do you like? People are like, I like the Fox Theater. I like the Rio. I like these little sure. elements of their city. Yeah. So as a city, we need to say, okay, how do we preserve those? And how do we make sure we keep that legacy business you love? And I didn't even know there was that little tree grove like I talked about in downtown earlier. Yeah. I didn't know that existed until I talked to the group there at the Post building. Because you have all these little elements that are in our neighborhoods that are key to it. It could be businesses. It could be people. It could be streetscapes. It could be a little grove of trees. And so we need to build on those instead of just clearing it and putting it up. And so that's when I think people talk about neighborhood character. Sometimes it can be weaponized. Right? People would say, oh, when you say that, it means you don't want any development. It's no. What are the things that build that neighborhood? Sure. I want to come out of each SkyTrain station and I want to feel like I'm in a different neighborhood. Yeah. And I think that's okay. And there's been a, right? But when Where I look at. are some good cities that give this kind of example, like New York City, oh, yeah. perhaps? Yeah. New York's a great example for it. And when you watch the Jane Jacobs, which has been on TV, what she did to save some of those neighborhood characters, showing that, like, that really close street front where it was very lively was safer than when they built the 20 story towers and they ended up taking them down and going back to the original because when you have good streetscapes, 
people feel more safe sure. when there's more eyes on the street, when people are more involved. But when yeah. you have fobbed buildings that people just drive into their underground, go straight up to the unit, and there's no interaction at a ground level, right. those buildings actually become less safe for people in and around them. And so building design is a huge component. And one of the things I love about bringing complete communities is having connection is one of the healthiest things for us. And when I've been involved in creating the well-being city and looking at well-being indexes, which Canada is one of the leading countries in having a well-being index, and how do we build cities that actually improve your health and well-being? And part of it is urban design and how you build a city and how many parks are closer to you, which has shown huge health benefits. How many interactions do you have with people? And so um, my mom has been challenging me to say, can you build buildings where people have to get off of the first floor, meet through a lobby, and then go down to the parking lot? Like, can you create more bump points? And today right. at the Vancouver Board and Trade, the person from uh, Mike who came and spoke from United Way said the same thing. It is really important to bump into people. Sure. And as a city, when we design the Vancouver plan, we need people to interact with each other. Yeah. And smaller stores. I think COVID probably accentuated that because we became 100%. so isolated and created a lot of uh, issues for people who were already struggling with like maybe loneliness, that type of thing. Yeah. And we now don't look each other in the eye. We sometimes will walk around the car, even though the sidewalk, because yeah. we're nervous to be close to people. And yeah. so it is really made the issue harder and right. and exacerbated a really difficult issue already where people don't feel connected. Yeah. And reconciliation is a huge component of reconnecting us to the land and waters. If you know where the water comes from when it falls on you and it goes to False Creek and you know there used to be a creek here and when you bring your friends you can say guess what the creek bed was here and you feel more connected to the land and waters because most of us are orphans to this land. Yeah. And so the more we can do to rewild the city and work with reconciliation, tell the stories, reconnect people to the streams and the trees that are around them, the better people feel about where they are and okay. the more they want to be involved in their community. And one of the biggest parts of well-being is housing, which affordable housing is a big conversation in this budget. And two is being part of democracy, which you're only going to do when you feel connected. And right. so that's why I want a complete community where you know your neighbors, you know what's around you, you don't have to leave if you want to. Your kid can get into the school nearby. You can get into swimming lessons nearby. Because my friend was right across from Henry Hudson and he couldn't get his kid into the school. He had to go four kilometers away. Yeah, that's, that's not that's okay. Crazy. Yeah. And we see yeah. that all over the city where we need to start building around the schools that have empty capacity, right? School boards being challenged to close down a school. Well, that's an issue by the city of Vancouver because we're planning density. And if right. we're planning density, like so what you're saying, instead Vancouver of close plan, down the schools, try and build up the uh, habitation around that. Yeah, like, Queen Mary is a great example. It's a right. beautiful school. Sure I is. went to a closed canal. And it's amazing that it has limited capacity. It has capacity. Okay, so that's a good description for li listeners to understand when we're talking into more of the getting more of these questions around what complete communities are. Now, you highlighted Broadway plan. You yep. obviously don't believe that that kind of entails a sort of complete community, and it speaks to your voting record. And and one of the things that actually really caught my attention in, in the early introduction when you said you wanted to run with the Vancouver Green Party because they didn't you didn't have a party whip who would whip you into making certain votes. And I think this is a good example. You know, Pete voted in favor of the Broadway plan. You voted against it. And I think that's actually, I, I admire that. I admire the fact that, you know, you've got two people of the same party who at times will vote differently. I think that's great. Can you explain to us why you voted against the Broadway plan? Yeah, well, first, Pete brought some amazing amendments for what we could do for renter protections. 
And those were report backs. And so I voted for those because I think what Pete's bringing to the table was really important. We need to make sure that the people in there, because 25% plus of our affordable rentals already in that corridor. So we need to make sure we protect it. And I think the amendments that Pete brought were great and I voted on them. They're report backs, which means if we're going to approve a plan that gives that density before we actually have the protections in place for the people that are there, we're going to see a huge amount of displacement of people being pushed out of the Broadway area because there is such a low vacancy. So for me, those were great things and I voted for them. However, the overall plan didn't meet those needs in the sense that one, the rental protections weren't in full place, even though everyone's saying that we have the greatest rent protections. They're just report backs where staff are learning about these options, but they're not in place to preserve the renters before we put this forward. Two, when I look at the Mount Pleasant plan I was involved in, we were short 350 people. And I know that when you talk to Pete, Pete wanted to make sure that we had a plan in place. It's 500 blocks of the city. We've got a lot of investment coming in. We need a plan. And where I differ was that I felt that the work I've done on the Mount Pleasant plan, we are really close and people love the human scale density that it's getting. And yes, we could put some more density in there to kind of meet those needs around the transit hub and others. But what the Mount Pleasant plan did is it showcased every block, which block was missing trees, what are the arts and culture spaces we need, created that building I talked about earlier about where artists could actually live and work and create Maker's Lab. That was a community amenity that was done because of the Mount Pleasant plan, right? The Independent, which was a huge controversial project, the money we knew went to buying Western Front and kept an arts and culture place in Mount Pleasant went to go to Grunt Gallery so they could buy their property. And so there was a straight correlation. And so all haven't been included. And in the Broadway plan, it was more like, here's all the density. But it didn't have all those breakdowns of all the nuances that were community done. I sat in meetings to kind of build it out. It also, I tried to bring forward a motion to say, how much green space do we need? And when you actually look at the Broadway plan, it was based on a document between Vancouver and TransLink for the funding for the provincial government. And in that it said, do not repeal the Mount Pleasant plan and state exactly where your parks and green space and schools and menis are gonna be. The Broadway plan didn't have that. And so for me, you can't put more people and more renters in areas of the city that don't have the amenities. It doesn't have the green space, right? It's one of the most efficient. Mount Pleasant and Kitsilano are the two that have been waiting for a dog park since I approved the strategy in 2017. So you have areas with very little amenities with tons of renters that are vulnerable and we're gonna put the density there when two weeks later we're voting on a Vancouver plan that could spread that density across the city and put it in the areas that we have school capacity and we have parks and we have the amenities that we need. And so for me, it didn't have the amenities aligned with the density. It didn't have the renter protections that were needed. And I don't believe that it was building those complete communities the way we can. Was there some really good things in the Broadway plan? Yes. And I voted for elements of it. And I think that through the Vancouver plan, we can make the changes needed for the Broadway plan. One of the big ones for me is the ecological restoration. There's a beautiful creek in the Vancouver plan that goes right through the Broadway plan. In the Broadway plan, it wasn't there. But in the Vancouver plan, we voted on this beautiful creek that goes down to Charleston Park that restores and takes all that rainwater. And sorry, back just to give the it. listeners a context, yeah. where, where's Charleston Park? Charleston Park is the one in False Creek. In False Creek, okay. Yeah, so it's the one that's got the little waterfall, there's a little dog park, there's yeah. an elementary school there. It's got yeah. that beautiful pedestrian bridge. That's right, okay. So yeah. Yeah. we have five creeks that used to come down that 
kind of hillside there. And we want to bring that water back because we're spending millions of dollars sending our rainwater to get treated. And when it rains in eastern East Vancouver, I basically tell people don't flush their toilets because it's going directly in the ocean because our system can't handle the amount of rainwater and sewage at the same time. Mm -hmm. And what we can do is restore our creeks and Broadway plan didn't kind of showcase as much. It does have blue green systems, which is a thing that I'm bringing, which is basically creating bikeways and greenways that have, you'll see them where you've got grass on the side of it and you've got some rocks and what it's doing is it's holding rainwater as much as possible. So when it rains, it slowly goes into the land instead mm -hmm. of going into our pipes and they're beautiful. We're going to start seeing our golf courses and our parks basically as sponges. You're seeing in New York city, they take uh, basketball courts and in, when it rains, they fill up with water and they turn into little ponds and then they dry out. But the goal <laughs> is they hold the water long enough that the system can handle it. And we don't have to send out raw sewage because our systems are, at capacity right now, we're building Iona, which will be the biggest capital budget expenditure the city has ever seen, which is our sewage treatment plant right there at the bottom between us and the airport. Okay. And it's going to be the biggest salmon restoration project because there's a huge opportunity there. But right now, as a city, we actually put out primary treatment, which means we basically just filter our sewage and our bodies aren't the same as they used to. We have a lot of chemicals that we now put into the ocean and we now know through science that is not okay. Michael, there are creeks along Spanish banks. Do you think we could get to a point where we actually see like salmon respawning in those locations? Yeah, last year, it was amazing. We were there, there was all these kids there. So the creek that you're talking about yeah. that we did about 10 years ago on the other side of the road, so on the endowment land side, yeah. or there's a little trail park, you go out. There's a little trail, yeah, there was a bunch, bunch of, of cohos. Yeah. And a really? bunch of more, yeah, big, beautiful cohos. A bunch of kids were there. A lot of those kids go to that creek with their schools to drop off the salmonoids. Um, and so yes. they got to come back and see the fish. Yeah. And the learning experience to see a coho, a nice sized salmon in Vancouver is big. What is the estimated cost? One in Kitsilano is probably between a million or two. Yeah. And what it's going to do is it's going to take stormwater from Second Avenue and go through Volunteer and Tatlow Park. So it's going to actually save us money in the long term because that water doesn't need to be treated by our sewage plant. It's going to yeah. be treated through a bioswell, which is basically a bunch of plants that pull out the toxins out of the water and then allow the water to go back into the ocean. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about community centers, Michael. More than half the community centers facilities that are owned by the city of Vancouver are what I would describe as poor in poor condition. In fact, 11 of them have been identified by the park board as being poor or very poor. And we know this. I mean, if you, I mean, I, I visit yeah. a lot of the community centers because I take my kids there. Can you maybe talk a bit about your vision for community centers? Because we have a lot of old, decrepit community centers. And are you looking to have mega centers built so that we get lots of people going to one location? Or is it viable to still have small places like uh, Lord Bing Pool? Um, yeah, it's a great conversation. So I was on Vancouver Park Board when we had that debate. And when the consultants came, they said, let's close down Templeton, Lord Bing, let's yeah. do the mega centers. Um, part of that was that the city funding it with development funding, which we fund most of our capital infrastructure, goes to new projects. So we have very little maintaining those pools. But then it was amazing to have the community come out and really tell us, which I knew because I'm at those all the time. We do all body swims. Those little pools are such cultural hubs and create spaces that you can't do at a large pool. Um, right. You're like absolutely right. We have a naked swim at Templeton, right? Like we have a 
trans swim at Templeton, you're not going to do that swim at Hillcrest. No, Hillcrest does play Hillcrest. a role. Yeah. And so the goal is, I think those smaller community facilities are important and we need to put maintenance funding into them. Yeah. And so I think the more smaller ones we have, the more community, that complete community, you can't have complete community if you have to drive 25 minutes to a pool. Your yeah. pool should be within your 10, 15 minutes. And so yeah. I believe the small neighborhood ones, we need to do more. We are going to have to co-locate them because that's a way we can reduce costs. So like okay. we said, if we did a pool beside an ice rink, we could utilize the heat, reduces yeah. our costs. I mean, that makes sense yes. for sure. So it sounds like what you're saying is you're in favor of both. You're in favor of some smaller community centers and areas that aren't as densely populated but still have your, you know, your Hillcrest type of facilities. Yeah. And one of the other big things I've done is we need to do this Vancouver Special 2.0, which is we need to do more repeatable building forms. And something the city used to do, if you go to Lord Bing Pool and you go to Templeton Pool, they're exactly the same. They are, yeah. If you go to Kitts Ice Rink or you go to Sunset Ice Rink, they're exactly the same. Yeah. It's okay that we take a model and put a few of them around the city sure. to reduce costs. Yeah. And does anyone complain that it looks the same? No. no. What they care about is that their kid has an opportunity for skate lessons and we've reduced the cost. And so sure. I want to see that done on a city level where we use repeatable building forms. But also when people are trying to build housing, I want you to go to a catalog and be like, this is a housing I want. And you can go through City Hall streamlined because we already know what you need. You don't need to have all the consultants because right. we know that project, we've approved it. If you're building a sixplex or a four story, we want to have certain building forms. The outside of these buildings look completely different the mm -hmm. way we have technology now. So it won't look like the Vancouver Special where each one is the same. Sure. But the goal is we're going to reduce cost. We're going to simplify it. It's going to be easier on our staff. It's going to yeah. be easier on the trades. And we can get these things built because yeah. we need more housing. Yeah, we need more sense. community facilities. Yeah. And we need a funding mechanism that's not just developer funding because all that does is build the Hillcrest pool when you put significant density in one area. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're seeing is that like we had a room at Dunbar Community Center you couldn't use because it was in such bad shape that they just basically closed the room off. That's not okay. <laughs> no. In a city like this, in a yeah. region like that, we have to be putting maintenance into our buildings. And that's why we have a, now we have a facilities management plan that shows the health of it. Like you talked about, there's a community center plan that broke down each single community center and what state it is and how we need to restore it. And I want young have, families to say, guess what? The city made it great. I went down to the community center. I put my kid for four hours. It was super cheap. My kid came back, had the best time, learned something amazing. We need to make sure that the next generation has those opportunities where they can grow up in our community centers in very diverse communities. Yeah. And they have all those connections where they feel safe walking to school. Yeah. I always walked to school. Yeah. And my I wasn't close. So yeah. when I say complete communities, I mean safe. I mean ones that have the small businesses that we we are supporting as a city and that have all the elements and amenities you need. So that's what I'm hoping for. And I do think there's good people running. People need to do their homework. I think the team of five we have, Deviani, Stephanie, Adrian, Pete, are an amazing group of five. You have ten votes. So go out there and figure out the other five you want to bring in with us. <laughs> Good plug. Um, yeah. Because I think it is important that we do have a mix. And people say, like, is it good to have people like Hardwick and Gene from such different extremes on yeah. council? 100% it is. Yeah. Because if we all have a majority government and we think one way and we can push things through, which you're hearing a lot right now with different candidates saying, give us a majority and we can push it through. I don't want that. Because that means that's one group of people that's getting their way in the city 
we're a very diverse city. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful to have people that bring different voices to the table. And we need to be able to debate more than we have. And so we made changes and I brought some of those to council. We need to make a lot more to be more collaborative and have more opportunity to have open dialogue that the public can hear that's not just battling an already done project, but early on so people can understand the progression of why this process happened. And I think that improving democracy in the city and education, the city plan is going to do a lot more of that over the next few years of what is city building? You brought it up multiple times. What does city government do? Water, parks, right? Like, what can you change? What are your limitations? Who do you work with? What are your partners? And I think the more we get people in the city to understand that, the better they'll be involved in decision-making, and we make better decisions as a group. Yeah. We make better decisions as a community, and it's been proven over and over ground, right? There's books you've read about, right? Plant Like, doing decision-making as a crowd has always been shown to be a better decision. Yeah. And so I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and I fair. think that I want to listen to more people in the city, and we need more tools and mechanisms as a city council to do that. Fellas, thanks for being on the uh, Election Series podcast today. It's been a really great conversation. It's finally great to meet both of you. We've talked on the phone lots before. For those listeners who want to get involved with the Green Party of Vancouver, help support you with your campaign, Adrian and your other candidates that are running, um, tell us how do they get involved? What, what do you need from them? We have a campaign office uh, running for the election up at uh, just past First and Commercial. I don't recall the address off the top of my head, but you can always find our through our website, vangreens.ca. It's probably the best way to track down our team and track down us. Okay. And yeah, the best way to get involved is get out with us, right? We're campaigning, we're out of events. It's really good to have people kind of with the day-to-day to see what we do, talk to us, get to know us, meet the constituents, meet the residents of Vancouver. So yeah, we'd love for people to come volunteer with the Greens. Um, and we also have a big show and shine coming up with electrification of vehicles that's going to be at the Burnout, which is a biker bar on Hastings Street, because we want to show what a dress transition looks like and okay. what the new kind of generational thinking can look like when we look at what will be our mobility five, ten years from now. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, thanks for being on the show today, fellas. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you.